Would you please pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning to dive into areas that angels have longed to look. The mystery of your salvation in Jesus Christ. So come now by the power of your Holy Spirit and speak to each and every one of our hearts now through your word. That we would hear you and follow you to the end of our days. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. In the public square that is social media, a new genre of self-disclosure narratives has appeared. It's stories of deconversion. And it takes on a very familiar form, and it goes like this. Take a, a former evangelical leader, pastor, worship song leader, contemporary Christian music artist, a, a writer, or just a professing Christian. Or maybe it's just a plain Joe professing Christian who no longer thinks it's important. And so they say on social media, after a certain number of years as a Christian, they're now leaving the church. They no longer believe. And so you see on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, a picture of them looking solemn on top of a mountain or looking up at the Rockies, but a bit free. And it's followed by a few lines of text that act as a testimony to their new freedom. There's themes of the journey of discovery, need to be honest with oneself, disappointment with the church, and the feeling of finally being free. I used to have all the answers, chapter and verse, now I'm unsure, still unfolding, enjoying the wonder and mystery of life, etc. Stories of... Loved ones, stories of people who you've admired leaving the faith is hard. It's quite unsettling. And it can raise important questions for us to think about. And while I do not doubt the sincerity of their deconversion, I do not doubt their disappointments with the church or their struggles and their suffering with faith, I do wonder if G.K. Chesterton's well-known phrase applies to not only these people, but to us as self. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. Moreover, the growing ease of which people deconvert, or the ease at which they define Christianity for themselves, and the warm reception of our culture to such announcements leads to a couple of observations, quite frankly. Number one, I have to ask anybody who says they've left, what have you left? Because so many have adopted or come into a pseudo-Christianity, which really isn't Christianity in the first place. Since the 1960s, the Christian columnist Ross Douthat, I think is how you pronounce his name, Douthat, has been, he's the author of a book called Bad Religion. 
our culture has spawned several types of pseudo-Christianities. He says, America is beset not by too much religion or by too little religion, but by bad religion. The slow-motion moral collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place is our main problem. Efforts by the church at large to accommodate Christianity to a changing culture has created these pseudo-Christianities. You have the self-help gospel, the therapeutic gospel, the prosperity gospel, the cheap grace gospel. And people may have thought they were Christians when really their hearts were bent on some version of these aforementioned gospels which none, number one, correspond to the reality in which we live and aren't coherent at all. So that's first. I have to observe, make that observation. The ease of deconversion that's happening now is because too many people's Christianity was a pseudo-Christianity. Second observation is this deconversion and radical individualistic stories reveal an increasingly appealing narrative and alternative. I've called it the secular creed, promising all the moral beauty of Christianity without the cost of discipleship. You see it in the yard signs. And the yard sign has a statement on top, in this home we believe. You've seen them, right? In this house, we believe, followed by several moral statements that no person at face value would ever disagree with. The equal dignity of men and women, the importance of loving the vulnerable, the importance of love. So according to this creed, there's a way to be moral that's less offensive in this new way than the old way. And here's why this is important. Sixty years ago, when a person would leave Christianity or leave the church, it's because they wanted to really just live the life they wanted to live as a great sinner. Right? Today, people aren't deconverting to be that way. They're deconverting to be better people. To be secular saints. It's become a virtue in our culture. And the point is that Christians have been the key of the cause of so many societies for problems. There's a better way to live now. Those problems in the church are alluded to the difficulty of Jesus' teachings, the tough doctrines that Christians hold. And the secular creed presents itself as a more appealing alternative. So when you combine pseudo-Christianity with the secular creed, of course, deconversion becomes very, very easy. So how do we respond? Well, welcome, brothers and sisters, to the Respond series. We're going to respond to deconversion today. We're going to respond to the gender issues next week. We're going to respond to racial issues the following week. Then we're going to respond to how do we live in this digital age as faithful Christians. Well, as it comes to deconversion, you know, we could remind people, while yes, the, the church has its failings, historically the church has offered to the world 
staggering blessings. I will spare you the details. But if we're really honest, we could do that. That all these secular creed ideas that you hold up as virtues, the church has been doing for 2,000 years. And they've been practiced. And they get their idea of dignity, their idea of goodness of work, the idea of the dignity of being created in God's image, male and female, worthy of honor. All those ideas come from the Bible. We could talk about these things, but I think there's something far more important to talk about with those who have deconverted, with those who no longer buy it, with those who see no need to be here on Sunday mornings. And so, at a time like this, we as Christian community must slow down and ask ourselves these questions that Paul is bringing to the Ephesians church. I encourage you to open with me in your Bibles, either on your devices or a physical Bible or in the back of the bulletin, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is writing to the Ephesian church about what authentic Christianity truly looks like. And the first point he makes, and the first thing we must understand as Christians if we're going to use that title of ourselves, if we ever were Christians, we need to understand, verses 1 through 3, that the grace of God is key. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is bringing out that the sheer grace of God is absolutely essential. It's indispensable to us as followers of Christ. Because he's making a point, in other words, there's a real difference between sick and being dead. Okay, There's varying degrees of sickness, right? You can be a lot of sick or a little sick. Either way, you go to a doctor, you get a prescription, and therefore you get a prescription. But in sickness, you have to contribute something. You've got to get up and go to the doctor. You've got to do some exercise. You've got to eat better. Whatever the prescription might be, you have something to contribute. But if you're dead, there are no degrees of death, right? You're not a little dead or a lot of dead, you're dead, all right? And what you need is a resurrection. There's nothing you contribute to it at all. Paul Hallis used to say, it's like being a stick that's buried six feet below the ocean floor. You're dead, and you can't get off the ocean floor. See, the Bible says... We're not sick in our sins to call on Dr. God. I've heard people actually say to me, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I need God to help me be better. But I don't want to take it as seriously as, as those born-again people. No, if we're sick in our sins, there are degrees and there's contribution. In other words, God's help is not at absolutely essential to them. 
But if we're dead in our sins, if we're absolutely spiritually dead to God, we need to be resurrected and that salvation in the grace of God is absolutely essential to each and every one of us. Because Paul says in Romans 3, there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Yeah, I know, there's moral people and immoral people. There are nice people and there are nasty people, but none of them, us, seek God on our own strength. You may be thinking, well, that's not what the latest poll says. The latest poll says Americans, you know, seek all kinds of ways to seek God. Well, you know, I've, I've been with people who have alcoholics in their families, and they've gone through Al-Anon. And over and over, I've heard the spouses of family members say something like this. For years, I thought I was loving him. I'd bail him out. I'd cover for him. For years, I, I would do all these things for him. And I thought I was loving, but I found out that what looked like selflessness was really selfishness. I needed him to be messed up. I needed to feel good about myself. And therefore, I needed to feel like I was the rescuer, his savior. Therefore, even though I was doing these things I thought were for him, I was really doing them for myself. And the Bible says something like that happens in every person, especially in the people who look good or successful, the people who are trying to be good people, who say, I'm, I'm trying to be a good person. Why? So God will bless me. So he'll listen to my prayers. He'll take me to heaven. He'll balance out the scales and I'll be good. What are you doing? Your, your selflessness is really selfishness. There's that immoral person out there doing bad thing. It's very clear that they're wanting to be their own masters. Well, so is the person who's trying to be good on their own strength, to be their own savior, their own Lord. They're rejecting the grace of God, which is absolutely essential, Paul writes. We're all dead to God, the good people, the bad people. Did you notice Paul said we are by nature children of wrath? What's wrath? That's the settled personal hostility of God to all of humanity that rejects Christ. To everything that's wrong in the world, God has wrath. Wrath and anger aren't the same thing. The settled, personal hostility. And we're all dead and by nature children of wrath. When that begins to seek in, I don't know about you, but it's pretty humbling. <laughs> and you begin to understand what Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The Christian is someone who's poor in spirit, who recognizes not that you're, we're spiritually in financial trouble, not that we're, we could just use a new investor to come invest in us, or we need spiritually to go get a loan to get better. We're spiritually bankrupt. We got nothing. We have nothing before God, and therefore, unless God comes in with his radical charity and to save us, we can't be saved. And so when you recognize this and you're saved by sheer grace, that makes you spiritually poor. It means when you really look at a poor person or a morally failed person, you never, ever treat them with superiority, ever. 
If you're looking down on someone right now in your life, if you're the good kid in your family, if you have siblings who are married or not married and they've done awful, you feel like you're the good one and you look down at them, or if you've succeeded financially and others haven't, they just haven't worked as hard as I have. If that's you, you haven't understood the grace of God. It's free, and it's absolutely essential for all of us. The grace of God, when you see its essentiality, begins to change you and humble you in all sorts of ways. That's Paul's first point. It's not only essential, it's also costly, verses 4 through 7. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here we're told what God does about our sin and our condemnation. And he does three great things. We're alive in Christ, alive with Christ, raised with Christ, and seated in the heavenly realms, the heavenly places. Now in the Greek, there's this prefix, S-Y-N, sin, on every Greek word, which of course is the Greek way of getting across together with. It's synonymous. We, what it's actually saying in Greek is God has made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us together with Christ. He's seated us in the heavens together with Christ. All past tense. It's been done. It's an amazing statement. It's saying that when you believed in this way, trusted totally in the sheer grace of Christ, the moment you believe, you become united with Christ. In the past, carrying into the present and into the future. We've been seated with Christ, not literally. But it means we are so loved and accepted and delighted as God, in God's eyes as Jesus Christ himself is. Right now. As he sits there in glory beside the throne of the Father interceding for us. When you become a Christian, when you believe in Christ, you're united with him so that everything Jesus has ever done and accomplished is yours. You're as honored, you're as loved, and you're as accepted as all his actions deserve. And it cost him everything. He got everything we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God treats us according to Christ's righteousness, but God treated him according to our rags, according to our sins. What did we deserve? We deserve physical death. We deserved eternal death. And what we got was eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus got it all. On the cross, he got our physical death. See, a free gift is not going to change your life unless you see how much it costs, right? 
imagine I came into your house and you're in your backyard cutting hydrangea trees, okay? You're cutting your hydrangea books, and on the counter you have your phone bill. And I see that your phone bill is $275.53. That's ridiculous, right? I don't know if what you're paying, but that's what I'm paying, and I'm ticked. <laughs> this, is, this is ridiculous. It's five phones. But, you know, I came in your house, I saw your phone bill, and I said, I'll pay that for you. That's ridiculous what these cell phone companies are charging. How would you respond? You say, gosh, that's, that's nice. Thank you. That's so generous. I appreciate that. That was so kind. But imagine if I came into your home and on a table was a letter from the IRS saying, we're going to get you, sucker, because you haven't paid 10 years of your taxes. You're going to jail. And I said, 10 years of taxes. I'll pay that. How would you respond to that? Hallelujah. Thank you. You'd bow down. You'd say, thank God. Thank you. I can't believe this. You'd be flabbergasted. You'd be awestruck. You'd hug me. You'd, you'd, you'd be blown away, right? That's how we respond to the costly grace of Jesus Christ. It's essential. It's costly. But by grace through faith, number three, it leads to a changed life. Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When this grace comes to you, it gives you that humility. It gives you that joy. But let's all admit, first, it kind of traumatizes you. Because it says, no more boasting. <laughs> we all have a little bit of self-righteousness in us, right? Let's be honest. We all do it. Everybody, even those who hate self-righteous people, have a little bit of self-righteousness. Why? Because you feel better than they, you know? You know you're better than they are. And you know it. Right? I don't denounce anybody. I'm not a bigot. I'm not narrow-minded. I'm not always telling everybody they're wrong. I'm not like them. Well, you just said you were. Grace comes and says, you are like them. Give it up. It takes you low, and it builds you up all at the same time. So high. And here's how he does it. You say, how does it work? It gives you a new identity, a new restructured identity. Because everyone in the world, until the grace of God comes, gets their self-image by comparing themselves to other people and looking down on those which they're better than in any way. But when the good news of Jesus comes, you start to look up. You start to look up to the only one who could have said to the Heavenly Father, look at my life. 
Look what I've achieved. Now give me what I ask, Father. Give me the world. Jesus could say that. He could have done that. And yet, what do we read about Jesus as he walked this earth? Paul writes in Philippians, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why did he do that? Why has the only person who could have boasted made himself no reputation at all? Because the ultimate somebody became a nobody. And the one person in the history of the world who deserved to have God say to them, well done, good and faithful servant, actually her on the cross heard God say, depart from me, you cursed ones. Enter into everlasting punishment. He did it so that we who deserve to have God say that to us on the last day, here instead, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into your rest. That's traumatic. <laughs> but it leads to peace and joy and hope and tranquility and purpose. Why? Verse 10. <laughs> he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's fascinating. That last verse, for we are his workmanship, that word workmanship is the Greek word poema. We get the word poem from that. In other words, you're a work of art. You're a beautifully crafted poem in Jesus Christ. When God comes into your life, you will find that everything that has happened to you in all of your life, even your tragedies, all your troubles, everything about you, your age, your ethnicity, your gender, your sufferings, your giftings, your strengths, your weaknesses, makes it possible for you to do certain goods, works in this world that only you can do. You no longer have to get your self-image out of your performance and compare yourself to others. And be insecure. <laughs> if you know the grace of God, it's the end of such living. It's the end of always being anxious about having to live up. It's the end of always comparing yourself to others. There's a certain per person God has turned you into in Christ. And there are certain great deeds that he has and only you can do. And you're saved by this essential, costly grace, which is a gift to be received. That's authentic good news of Jesus Christ. So let us ask ourselves some questions. That we can also respond to those who say, I no longer buy it. Number one. Do you have 
Well, you can ask those questions we talked about in the evangelism section. And oh, 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 oh. By the way, the books came in. I ordered them five months ago. Okay? So this fall, each one reach one by December 1st, I'm a little workshop how you can use these little Gospels of John to help a person come to know faith in Christ. All right? It's coming. It's coming. But remember what we said to those people? You know, you, you're at the pub. In your opinion, who's Jesus? Let them tell you. Because oftentimes, the Jesus they're professing isn't the Jesus of the Bible. And then invite them into this, this discussion of looking at who Jesus is. But another question we can ask ourselves is, do, do you have an esteem of Jesus? Do you see yourself desirous to grow in him, to love him more and more, and striving to be a blessing? Is there a newness of life in you? Two, is there a bent toward godliness and a bent away from worldliness? Now, no, notice I said bent. Because you've heard me often say there's no perfect people here. Amen? We have a bent. There's a, there's a desire to know the Lord, to grow in the things of the Lord. But you're going to fail. Welcome to my life. All right? It's in Christ. We're not perfect people. We're made perfect in Christ, but our walk with him will be ebbs and flows, hills and valleys. But we have a bent to grow in him. If there's no desire whatsoever, you need to really examine your heart to see if you understand the cost of grace of Jesus. And three, there's a love for, do you have a love for God's people? The church. If, if, if you're not here, you can't know and love people you don't know. If I were to pop in after a six-month hiatus to Kim and say, Hello, honey, I'm home. How would she respond? We need to talk, buddy. Right? But there's a relationship, not only with the Lord, but with his people. These are the people God died for. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you love the church, you love the people, even though you have very little in common, but you have everything in common in the gospel. In this gospel, we love one another. Has that grace truly changed you in your life? Have you seen its essentiality it's costliness. I've had people actually say to me, well, okay, God gives you everything, but you have to have enough faith. I just don't have enough faith. You have to have faith, right? Well, did you read verse 8? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. He won't even grant that because he gives you the faith. If you have the faith to receive God's grace, that itself is God's grace. And you think, that's weird. No, it's actually beautiful. You ever walked up to your spouse when he or she is 
fast asleep. Held their head and planted a big wet one on them. He or she wakes up, smiles, and embraces you. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has kissed us spiritually from the sleep of death. You're asleep. You're not calling on him. You're not looking for him. But he comes and he kisses you awake, gives you that faith. Embrace him with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is the true good news of Jesus. We pray that we at Christ Church and, and all those whom we love, where we live, work, and play, would embrace this good news. We just prayed a beautiful prayer at the beginning of our service. Give us the increase of faith, the increase of hope, and the increase of love. And that we may obtain what you have promised in our lives. Make us love what you command. Lord, may that be our prayer throughout this week and every day of our lives. We surrender to you, Lord Jesus Christ, considering all this today. That you, Lord Jesus, truly did die upon the cross and suffered for us. And it cost you everything. And it's by the sheer grace, which is absolutely essential. We have nothing to add to it. And we were by nature children of wrath, but you took away that wrath and clothed us in your righteousness because of this gift, and we receive it once again. For your honor and glory, we pray and we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.